Romans chapter 8, begin reading in verse number 12 this morning as we continue our study in this wonderful chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Pray with me. Father, we're so thankful for the privilege now of opening your word. Lord, what a blessed thing it is that we have the Bible. I thank you so much for it. And I pray this morning that as we, uh, as we look at it and we study it and we think about these verses, oh Lord, I pray you'd be our teacher. I pray the Holy Spirit would fill me. I pray, Father, that I'd be able to say the things you want said and only those things. pray you'd protect me and everyone from my saying anything I ought not. Help us, Lord, today to just uh, hear from you. And I pray that we'd all be filled with your spirit that we might hear and understand and respond to your word. Help us, Lord, uh, to be students of the Bible and uh, to be willing to live according to what it has to say. So guide us, direct us, bless this time. Uh, We'll give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the previous study, we, uh, we noticed Paul's use of a little phrase, and it was the little phrase, we are. We talked last week about that. Because of Jesus Christ, we are, uh, we who are saved, have a new reality. And that's what the little phrase speaks to. There are certain things that are now true of us as Christians that were not true of us before we became Christians. And, and we learned some of those. Let me just mention them briefly. In, in chap, uh, verse number 12, we learned that we are debtors. We have an obligation now as believers to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord uh, out of, uh, out of, out of uh, our, our, our love for Him, our, our, our 
thanksgiving to him. We're to live holy lives of service and worship. We learned according to verses 14 through 16 that we are now members of the family. Words like children and sons and daughters and heirs and all of that in there. Adopted. All of those things we learned teach us that, that we are members. We were born again into the family of God and we were adopted to a position of, of uh, privilege and uh, honor in that family. And then finally we learned that we are heirs. We are joint heirs uh, with Christ, according to verse number 17. And we inherit the riches of our Father. And we inherit all that is Christ's and all that is His is ours. Amazing stuff. And so in that little phrase, we are, we saw some wonderful truth about our reality, the changed reality that is ours now, that we are believers. Well, in this study, I'd like to look at another little phrase that Paul uses here. There's three we're going to look at before we're done. Today's the second one. I want us to notice that he uses the little phrase, we know, a lot here. We know. And uh, not only is our reality changed by our salvation, so too is our understanding of things. There are certain things now that we understand that we could not apart from our relationship with the Savior. We know some things. And let me just mention four. You may see some others in here, but we're going to concentrate on four things that Paul says we know. He says that we know that all creation is broken by sin. We have an understanding of that as believers that uh, we cannot have apart from being a believer. We know that we are broken by sin. And we've talked about that one a lot, so we won't, we won't park on that much, but we'll mention it. We know that all suffering will pale when compared to what is to come. And we also know that everything is working toward God's planned conclusion. And so let's look at those four things that we know. The first one is in verses 18 through 22. We know that all creation is broken by sin. How many of you have heard the name Charles Darwin? Hmm, interesting. Lots of us. Charles Darwin, of course, is credited with the theory of evolution. He wrote a book, I think it was called The Origin of Species, something like that, detailing his theories. Most of Darwin's disciples would deny it, but the fact is Darwin's reason for his thinking was not particularly scientific. He, he was a scientist, but his reasons for coming up with what he did were not particularly scientific. They were theological. Darwin could not understand how a loving God would do some of the things that he saw in this world. He did not understand how he would create a world so filled with death and blood and mayhem. He could not... That's a theological question. How could a loving God do these things? It's not scientific. I came across a blog posting this week as I was thinking about this, and it illustrated Darwin's dilemma. The blogger started out by saying he wanted to, to share one of Darwin's favorite quotes. And this quote is actually what I was looking for when I came across this. But uh, he wanted to share one of his favorite quotes. And then he, he went on and explained how he interpreted this quote. So let, let me just read a little bit of his post, and, and, and maybe it'll make it clear. He said this, and, and I'm reading from his blog now. He said, for Darwin Day, I thought I'd repost one of my favorite Darwin quotes. Here it is. And this is the quote I was looking for. Darwin said, I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the ignominidae, whatever that is, ignominidae, with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. End of Darwin's quote. Then he goes on to explain that. He says, the ignominidae is a family of wasps, a very big family. It is, in fact, one of the largest families and the largest class of animals, the insects. There are over 60,000 species of ignominid wasps 
each one according to creationists, but specially designed by God. That is not a true statement, but that is being spoken by an evolutionist who is misrepresenting our position. But nonetheless, I'll keep reading. He says, my question for them, the creationists, is the same as Charles Darwin's. Why? Why would a beneficent and omnipotent God do such a thing? And to understand the question, it is necessary to know a bit about the ichnominids. I don't know how to pronounce that word. First of all, most are parasitoids, which means that their larvae develop inside the body of a living host, which they slowly eat alive. Eventually, when the wasp larvae pupate, they erupt out of the body of the host that they have gradually consumed, tormented, and destroyed as larvae. Now, I can understand Darwin's dilemma. That's disgusting. It's horrible when we think about that. This wasp lays its eggs in the body of this caterpillar. They eat the thing from the inside out and then explode out of it. And, and you know, as, a, as an unbeliever, you would look at it and say, a loving God? How? He goes on. He says, it's easy to see how such a thing could exist from an evolutionary standpoint. The body of a caterpillar is good food for larvae. It is not surprising that some organisms have evolved to take advantage of it. But what kind of a god would purposefully design it to be that way? And that's the end of the quote. The man who posted that online uh, maintains a blog entitled, Dwindling in Unbelief. And unbelievers' thoughts about the Bible, the Koran, and the Book of Mormon. He, like Darwin, has a theological problem. It's not a scientific problem. And, and I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning as Christians, if we really think this thing through and we, we, we stop trying to say what we think other Christians want us to say or what we think we know the Bible says, if we're just honest with ourselves, I think that we would have to say uh, we don't have to look very far in this world before our eyes fall on oddities that make us wonder. If God, then why? I see a few heads nodding. My Bible tells me in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 16 that God is love. And so we don't have to look very far before we see examples of blood and hate and horrible things in this world. And we cannot help but say, if God, then why? Our world right now is obsessed with homosexuality and every other aspect of human sexuality. As a matter of fact, I think, I think that right now probably the transgender phenomenon uh, trumps homosexuality as far as the interest and the airtime that, uh, that they're getting. And regardless of anything else you might think about such things, there is a question that must be dealt with. There's a question that we must ask, and that is, if God is love, why would he create it that way? How can we sit here and say it's unnatural if homosexuality is wrong and unnatural? And it is, according to Romans chapter 1. Why would a loving God create somebody that way? And there are seemingly endless ways we could apply this question. Seemingly endless things that come up, problems in our world that make us ask this same thing. What about racism today? Racism is rampant in our society. Much of it, I think, is being blown out of proportion, but it's, it's there. It's nonetheless. If there is a God, and if God is love, why would he create a world so filled with hate? We cannot help but answer that or ask that question, can we, if we're honest with ourselves? Religion would seem to be entirely a God thing, wouldn't it? Where in the world would religion come from if not from God? And yet, if there is a God and He created us to worship, why would He create so much chaos and confusion and hate in the name of religion? I mean, these are honest questions, don't you think? And I think young people are especially prone to this kind of thinking. You know, uh, 
the older we get, the less misty-eyed we get about these kinds of things. And we begin to recognize and are able to separate, I guess, in our minds, the difference between, um, you know, this sin-marred world and our grace-filled God. But young people, they still have all these wonderful notions and these innocent thoughts. And I think they tend to think this way a little bit more. So, teens, I want you to underline something in your Bible. I want you to think about verses 20 through 22 because this is the answer. These verses answer this question. And it'll help you. Verse number 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Here is the answer. God created it all good. He created everything good and right and perfect, but then it was subjected to decay and corruption and brokenness when sin entered the picture. And now, all creation is looking forward to God's planned solution to that brokenness. This is, this is the story uh, that we see all throughout the Bible. We see that, first of all, it was created perfect. Genesis chapter 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at that moment, there were no wasps that were eating up the insides of caterpillars. That was not taking place. The very last verse of Genesis chapter 1, verse number 31, Then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Everything was good and right in God's original creation, but then it was broken. And it is still broken. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17, To Adam He said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Cursed is the ground. Creation was cursed. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. I don't think there were any thorns before sin entered into. I think you could pick a rose without a single drop of blood. I think they were just smooth as could be. But all that stuff came as a result of the brokenness that sin brought into this world. It was broken. And now Paul says it waits. Look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It's waiting for the deliverance. The same as we are. I read another quote online this week. I think it was in Twitter, but I didn't write down where I got it. But it said this, Only man and technology can save the planet. Only man and technology can save the planet. And, you know, if I were to ask for a show of hands today and everybody's heads were bowed and everybody's eyes were closed and nobody's looking around, I'll bet you some of you would, would say you agree with that. Because I think, unfortunately, that is, a, that is something that certainly the unsaved world believes, but I think some Christians believe it too. Only man and technology can save the planet. But here's what Paul's teaching here. Here's what the teaching of Scripture is. God, not man, will save the planet. He's going to recreate it. And it's waiting for that day. It's waiting for the deliverance. It's waiting for when God fixes what is broken. And it will be perfect again. Notice what Paul says. The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In verse number 21. God's plan of fixing what was broken at the fall has always involved recreation. All of us are recreated when we're born again. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. 
And his plan for fixing this world involves the same. Revelation 21 verse 5 says that he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. People like Charles Darwin don't have this understanding, didn't have this understanding, couldn't reconcile these things in their mind. But we who are saved, we know. We know this is true. All creation was broken by sin. Verse number 23, let's notice the second thing that we know. We know that we are all broken by sin. We. And we've seen this before. I don't want to belabor this this morning. Paul's description of our personal need for salvation has been stated over and over and over. And, of course, Romans 3.23 is what comes to mind, doesn't it? We've probably quoted it in every sermon from Romans. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we see that here again. We are lost. We are broken. We are in need of help. We need to be saved. That's what Paul's teaching us here. But I think there's a different emphasis here in verse number 23. I don't think he's so much talking about the fact we are broken. I think he's talking about the effects of that on us. The effects of our brokenness on us. Look at verse 23 of chapter 8. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Isn't that an interesting phrase? We groan within ourselves. We groan. And he said that about creation too. And that which is true of creation in general is also true of you and I on this personal level. The brokenness of sin in our life causes pain. It causes struggle. It hurts. We groan under it. It oppresses us. It burdens us. It weighs us down. Even those of us who are saved, who have been forgiven of every sin... Still, for a short time, we must live with the effects of it while we're still on this broken earth, right? And so he says here we wait. Just as the creation waits, we wait. Verse 23, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Oh, there is coming a day. There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. When no more clouds will be in the sky. No more tears to dim the eye. When all is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day. Glorious day. That will be. There will be no sorrow there. No more burdens to bear. No more sickness. No pain. No more parting. No more parting over there. And forever I will be. With the one who died for me. What a day. Glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face. The one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand. And leads me through the promised land. What a day. Glorious day that will be. Now we groan. But not then. Soon the, oppressant, the, the, the crushing oppression of the sin that infests this decaying world will be lifted. And what a day that will be. Number four. We know that all suffering will pale when compared to what is to come. Is this really number four or is this number three? Whatever. I've lost my count. We know that all suffering will pale when compared to what is to come. Look at verses 18 and 19. 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. What does all creation wait for? What is it that they're, that they're longing for, hoping for? What is it that we wait for and hope for? It's the return of Christ. It's the revealing of that future glory, our future glory. As I was studying this, I noticed that that, that little word that is translated eagerly waits here in this verse. Uh, that word is a, it's a Greek word which is used seven times in the New Testament. And each time it refers only to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. And when he returns, when the king comes, every moment of suffering here, no matter how intense or crushing it may have seemed, is going to pale in comparison to the joy that we have there. The glory that will be will make us forget the suffering that is. I want to suggest two reasons why that is. Two reasons why the glory to come will make you forget the suffering that is. One is because the future glory is so much greater in quality. Quality. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. In John chapter 10 and verse number 10. And when we read that, we oftentimes think he's talking about quantity there. I've come that they might have a lot of life. Long life. Many, many years of life. But I think if we study that, we find out that it also means quality. Abundant life. Abundant quality of life. There's a passage we read every year at Christmas time. It's in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I love that phrase. Think about that phrase. Of the increase of his government, of the increase of peace, there will be no end. It will keep increasing. I can't get my brain around that. Can you get your brain around that? It will keep increasing the peace and prosperity He will bring. It will grow and grow and grow and grow the quality of life that He brings when He comes. It will just keep getting better and better and better, as the old gospel song says. Every day, more wonderful than the one before. And maybe you think I'm reading too much into that. I don't know. Maybe I am. But I think the teaching is clear. He did not come in the first place and he will not come back the second time to give life that is only infinite in duration, but also infinite in quality, infinite in peace, infinite in joy, infinite in hope, infinite in fulfillment. And so because of that, the suffering that is today will pale in comparison to the joy of tomorrow. Because of the quality of life he's bringing. But also, and here's the second reason, I do think it's because the future glory is so much greater in quantity. And I know I just downplayed that, but now let's go back to it. We are going to live for a long time when we get there, if you stop and think about it. Let's not forget how long. It's forever. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It's never ending. When we've been there 10,000 years, some would say forevermore, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise. Than when we first begun. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see it? Do you get it? Do you see what Paul is saying here? He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. All suffering will pale in comparison to the blessing that is to come. Think of the worst examples of brokenness you can think of in our world today. What would they be? 
Would they be ISIS with all of its horrors and atrocities and the disgusting and vicious things that they're doing? Would it be Planned Parenthood cutting open the heads of living babies and removing their brains so they can sell them someplace? What is the worst thing you could think of? Would it be the Holocaust during Nazi Germany's time and the multiplied thousands and millions who were killed and tortured? You see, the glory of what Paul is saying is this, the joy that will be is orders of magnitude more than the worst that is. And that's an amazing thought to me. He said something similar to the Corinthian believers in Second Corinthians chapter 4. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the th- at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. One last thought, verse number 28. We can't go off out of this passage without looking at verse number 28. We know that everything is working toward God's planned conclusion. We know that everything is working. Verse 28, we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I preached on this passage not very long ago, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it now. You can get that message and listen to it online if you'd like. But I just want to remind you of a couple things out of this that are, that are important. I would like to remind you that it does not say that all things are good. That would be untrue, wouldn't it? ISIS is not good. Wasps laying eggs in caterpillars and then exploding out of them is not good. Even cats tormenting mice is not good. There are a lot of things in this world that are not good. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says uh, all things work together for good. And God is using it all, and God is bringing it all together, and the result will be good. And when he is done weaving his tapestry, he and we will be able to step back from it and look and hear him say once again, as he said way back in Genesis, it is good. It's very good. So all things work together. And I would also remind you of one other thing from this verse, which is important. I would like to remind you that this promise good is not for everybody. We see this in almost every passage in Romans, don't we? Paul is so clear about this over and over and over. He says it. Not everybody can claim this promise. Only those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. In other words, only those who are saved. Only those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who, as Paul has been describing it all throughout this book, are justified by faith can claim that promise. And so I have to ask, as we have to ask in every sermon, is that you, are you one of the ones who can claim it? Are you saved? Have you trusted Christ? Are you born again? Have you been justified by faith? Are you a Christian? And if so, then we say praise God for these glorious truths, for these things that we know. But if not, if you, if you think about that and you realize in, your, in the honesty of your heart that that's not true, you can be today. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. We're going to have a, an invitation time when we encourage you to step out and come to the front. Let us take the Bible and show you. We won't embarrass you. We'll just try to answer your questions and show you how you can know and how you can be part of that promise. And fit yourself right into that verse. Well, so let's sum it up. Because of Christ, our reality is changed. We are indebted to Him. This is what we learned last week. 
We are obligated now to live for Him. We are also family with Him, brothers and sisters. And we are also heirs of and with Him. All that is His is ours. Because of Christ, our reality has changed. We are. And then now this morning we've learned that because of Christ, our understanding has changed. We know some things now. We understand some things. We know that all creation is broken by sin. We don't have the problems with things like Darwin did that he had because we understand it. We know that we are broken by sin personally. We know that all suffering will pale when compared to what is to come. And we know that everything is working toward God's planned conclusion. As Christians, our understanding has changed. And we know and understand the brokenness of the world. We understand the brokenness of ourselves. And we see how God is fixing it all. Praise God.